Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 319. My name is Camden Busey. I'm excited to be back with you today. Uh, We have got an excellent uh, interview lined up for you, an excellent conversation with a good number of people. Let me introduce them to you today. Uh, We have Jeff Waddington, who is stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jeff. It's good to speak with you today. Well, it's great to be here on this beautiful day and to talk about this important subject. Absolutely. We also have Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary, but he's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. Thanks, Camden. Honored to be on this one. Yeah, absolutely. This is a big episode, and we are very pleased to welcome back to the program. He's been on several times before. Uh, We have Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., who is Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology Emeritus at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome back, Dr. Gaffin. It's great to have you on with us today. Thanks, uh, Camden. Uh, My privilege... Appreciate the opportunity of speaking with you again. Well, we are excited to have you and uh, very honored to be able to speak with you about this excellent book, By Faith, Not By Sight, Paul and the Order of Salvation. This is the second edition, and we're going to open up this book and talk about it. It's very important, and we're so glad that this book has been brought back. Uh, it's published now by PNR Publishing, and uh, we're going to talk about that today. But first, I need to pause and mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Uh, we love doing it, but we need your help. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org donate to pledge your support. Every little bit counts, and uh, just as I finished up the donation reports for 2013, uh, I was just overwhelmingly encouraged by the the number of uh, people who give and also the just amount of encouragement we receive through the emails and, and all sorts of venues. Uh, thank you so much for helping us do what we do. We love uh, supporting the church and helping people go deeper in their faith uh, through informed theological conversation. Online today, reformedforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Christ the Center and our organization, Reformed Forum. Well, guys, I do need to say that uh, this is an excellent copy here. The previous edition went out of print. Um, I was sad to hear that that had happened because I know several people had thought about having either ministers' groups go through this book or um, different uh, Bible studies or book studies in churches, but it had become cost prohibitive. I think I saw a copy of the first edition by faith, not by sight, available online for over two hundred dollars. So, yeah, I saw that same thing. <laughs> doesn't really fit in the budget, especially for a paperback. But right. uh, PNR has come in to save the day in many ways uh, to bring us here a second edition of the book. Uh, Jared, why don't you tell people what's going to happen at the Desiring God Conference for Pastors? Uh, this episode will come out publicly. Uh, after that conference has already been over, but um, I hate to break it to all the regulars, but the people in attendance at the conference are going to be privy to a special pre-release link so that they can listen to Dr. Gaffin speak about this book before everyone else. It's a little um, scoop uh, for the for the conference goers, but what's going to happen and why are we having Dr. Gaffin on, especially right now, to talk about this? Yeah, thanks. It's it's really timely because um, at the Desiring God Pastors Conference, the theme is union with Christ. And uh, so the, the main speakers is actually just going to be three. They're kind of veering from their usual um, panel that makes up about, I don't know, four or five people, maybe six. Uh, so it's just going to be Dr. Piper, of course, and then the two guests will be Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Horton. And uh, funny enough, Ferguson is on the cover of this uh, yeah. new edition. Uh, he says, a rich and deeply satisfying theological treat. A treat? So, yeah, a good endorsement. But um, I'm excited because a lot of the attendees, this is a pastor's conference, so it's going to be about 2,000, give or take, pastors who are going to be hearing on the topic of union with Christ, and they will be receiving this book in their bag. So uh, 2,000 pastors are going to be having a copy uh, to read and uh, it's just, again, so timely to be talking with Dr. Dr. Gaffin now so they can listen to um, our discussion and maybe fill in some of the details or even get a context for the book. So yeah. I'm super excited to um, just have kind of a by faith, not by sight week uh, this week. Exactly. Now, this book, of course, has been out for some time, and it was the product of various lectures that were delivered at, at different places and at different times. Uh, we will have a link to uh, many, many resources that are available online. Uh, Dr. Gaffin is 
has, has uh, been on our program several times. He's also done a conference at Calvary OPC in Ringo's. But there are also other addresses that he has delivered on the subject of union with Christ. So there will be plenty in the show notes for people to uh, to listen to. Uh, Dr. Gaffin, uh, can you speak a bit about uh, just the second edition? I think the first question many people will have, especially people familiar with your work, will be, what's different? What has changed, and what can we expect from this second edition? First of all, uh, let me say I, I really appreciate the willingness of PNR to pick up this and, and work toward publication. It's uh, I really appreciated uh, uh, working with them on this and the initiative they've taken. I originally had in mind, uh, the first edition appeared in 2006 or five. I think it's 2006, and then it was reprinted several times and then eventually uh, went out of print in 2009. I had in mind when PNR agreed to bring it out again uh, a more thorough revision, but that hasn't worked out with other um, commitments I've had. I didn't want to delay making it available again. So I think uh, particularly for those who have the first, uh, the original edition, you won't find a whole lot different in uh, this revised version. I think it's fair to call it a revised version, even though the revisions aren't substantial. I've got some feedback, uh, of course, through reviews and others of the original publication, and I uh, sought at a number of places to clarify, did expand, made brief changes here and there. With that said, let me uh, really highlight two things couple things, if I might. Uh, a fair criticism of the original edition is that there were no indices. Mm. And I am deeply indebted to Dustin Udaly, uh PCA pastor in, um, in, um, Down in Florida, Tampa, right? Florida mm-hmm. uh, for preparing a very careful and thorough indices of scripture, subject, and author. I think that really does enhance the work. And then uh, I want also, with that thanks to uh, Dustin and his very careful work, to uh, highlight the, the forward that uh, Mark Jones has provided. I think that is just, uh, it's a piece I appreciate so much. And I think it really lends great value to the work as a whole because of what he has undertaken to do in that uh, forward within the, uh, the span of 10 pages. It's just, in my view, marvelously written. Uh, he seeks to show the historical theological continuity uh, between earlier Reformed theology and the biblical theological results of my study on uh, Paul, and I think that's very important because a fair amount of criticism has come from some quarters, not well-based in my judgment, that the kind of biblical theological work that I'm involved in is represents some kind of deviation or divergence from classical Reformed orthodoxy. And uh, I think that uh, Mark just puts the lie to that so very effectively, and and I have really benefited from his work, and that's what I've seen myself as the years have passed. You know, there are resources, particularly in Calvin, of course, and then subsequently in the 17th century in continuity with Calvin— that my biblical theology, theological work, whatever its value, has has simply uh, built on and and reinforced exegetically and through biblical theological method what that earlier Reformed theology has seen. Well, <laughs> you asked a question. I've been giving <laughs> a long answer. I could keep going, well, but we'll I listen, better uh, stop at that point. Well, you know, you have been charged with being a novel theologian, which I think your work with the standards and your exegesis, coupled with the historical context, can show on its own that that's just not true. But I would like to say, on behalf of Jared and Jeff, that if you did found a school, and we would call it Der Gaffenschule, then I would, <laughs> then I would like to be the first student. 
You'll well, join. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. I, I think I, I've made uh, clear elsewhere what I think of that designation. Right. But uh, let's skip the German. Well, well, okay, okay. You know, you've had you've uh, done your work with the German critical uh, scholars, so we'll we'll table that for a moment. Now, I do want to turn the attention, as, as you've already drawn up, to, to Mark Jones Forward. Uh, that brings up a whole host of issues, and I wanted to ask you as we start, I know Jared's got a question on, on this note. Before Jared asks his question, I wanted to ask you, what has really changed in the theological debates and the context, even over the last 10 years? This arose in the midst of growth in the new perspective on Paul and in federal vision theology, but today we're dealing with a lot of those same issues, but we're also dealing with other issues and debates and discussions over antinomianism and neonomianism. What have you seen as developments or as changes in the even in-house over the last 10 years? Uh, the way to responding to that, if I could just get in a, a plug, yeah, because I think it's pertinent to the way you were phrasing your question, and that the book on Puritan theology, I guess the exact title is a Puritan theology, but it comes to nearly a thousand pages. It's uh, co-authored by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones. For those who want to have an appreciation, I think, for uh, continuity uh, along the lines of what Mark has put very briefly there in the, in the forward, I'd commend that work. Coming to the matrix or set of issues that are most in view in my study on Paul, Mark's chapter is chapter 30 in that book on union with Christ, justification, and regeneration. That, I would say, is a must-read for anyone who wants to understand what the representative Puritans that uh, Mark deals with there believed on these issues and how compatible the views that they came to are with the kinds of things that I've sought to bring out in the book on Paul's theology. Now, to your question, what prompted the book in the first place, nearly a decade ago now, was issues raised by the new perspective and a tendency to eclipse in the writings of uh, particularly N.T. Wright, as I read him, and I just add very, just insert there, he's now just recently published his his massive two-volume work on Paul's theology that has been anticipated for quite a while. I haven't had an opportunity to look at that yet. So anything that I might say, particularly about right at this point, you know, I, I would certainly want to take into consideration what he has just published, although I have read a couple reviews and it appears to me that overall there's a fair amount of continuity with uh, what uh, is in the Paul book, this big study of Paul and what Wright has said earlier. And mm-hmm. and uh, particularly uh, Wright themes rather dismissive of at least careful attention to application redemption issues, uh, particularly as that would arise from his study of Paul. And so my effort, as much as any in the book, uh, was to uh, show that Paul indeed does come to very definite conclusions on, you know, the question that was put to him by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved, which is an ordo-salutis-oriented question. At the same time, the book, then as now, is not a really in-depth investigation or interaction with the new perspective, but just with that issue in the background, I really wanted, uh, as as briefly as I could without being superficial, to uh, make a positive presentation of what Paul believes about the appropriation of the salvation accomplished once for all in Christ. And so uh, now you brought in the more recent discussion that sort of flamed up in certain quarters about antinomianism. Yeah. Again, by the way, uh, let me plug in for my forwarder, uh, Mark Jones. I think a number of your uh, listeners are likely aware of his big study on antinomianism. Yeah, we just had him on and interviewed yeah, him with, a few weeks ago. Yeah, well, well that's uh, that's, I think, a most valuable study. And I think that 
the central conclusions that I come to about the teaching of Paul are as applicable against an antinomian position with a tendency to neglect sanctification as they are to the new perspective, to the extent new perspective representatives are either indifferent or just plain wrong on issues of order salutis, the application of redemption. Dr. Gaffin, before we get into issues uh, dealing with Paul's theology in, in some detail, and specifically with regard to the application of redemption relationship of justification and sanctification and union with Christ, historically, and you've pointed this out, there's been some discussion as to whether Paul as the apostle and writer of a good portion, if not the dominant portion of the New Testament, whether he can be considered a theologian or not. What is your take on that? Well, it depends on how you define theology, of course. But if you define theology as I think it needs uh, to be defined as reflection or teaching concerning God and particularly uh, the self-revelation of the triune God as it has focused in Christ in his coming in the fullness of time, then Paul leads us in that reflection that God's Word, Scripture, with its variety of genre, is oriented toward the history of redemption, or more broadly to covenant history, creation, fall, and over the and then the eventual salvation and consummation of salvation that has arrived and, and will be brought to complete fruition at his return. Uh, so that Paul is certainly in that sense someone, his letters uh, reflect a very careful thinking about it, what it means, well, to put it in the language of the opening uh, words of the book of Hebrews, which would be quite consonant with Paul. Paul is reflecting on, on what it means that God has in these last days spoken to us in the Son. Now, of course, there's a liability, and some have objected to the designating Paul as a theologian because they would want to define theology as something that has to be post-canonical or less than Scripture. And it, of course, is very important in identifying Paul as a theologian, and I would say following, uh, particularly within a Reformed context, figures like your hardest boss and, and Herman Ritterboss, it's very important to keep in view the discontinuities between apostolic theology or the theology that we find in the New Testament, I would say notably in, in Paul and in Hebrews, and that of the theologizing of the later church. So you make a distinction between inspired and non-inspired, canonical and non-canonical, as long as you keep that distinction in view, that Paul's theology has word of God, and in fact, for us, inscripturated character, God-breathed character, that has that uh, quality which ours does not, and uh, we build on that then I think there should not be objection to viewing Paul as a theologian and appreciating the value of viewing Paul as a theologian because that sets the guide or the direction for our own uh, theologizing. (laughs) If I could put this in, and you may decide to (laughs) edit it out, what I've always found out helpful for having done a little bit of work in math and in differential calculus, the history of redemption is the function, Paul's theology is the first derivative, and ours has a second derivative character. It's always controlled by Paul. It's always working. We don't have any access to the history of redemption, to who Christ is, who God in Christ is, to the work of Christ, to God as creator and redeemer. Our only access is through Scripture. But Scripture is always has that focus. 
so that in the end, everything is always focused on who God is as creator and who the triune God is as creator and redeemer. And our theologizing always has that second derivative character, if you will. Well said. I think that's so important, and I I also find it very helpful the way you structure the argument with the different chapters. And right now we're talking a little bit about method, um, so it's kind of we're in we're in the forest right now and, and getting an overview. But um, what you just said is it works so well in tandem with what you describe as a redemptive historical, or I think it's a great term, covenant historical approach or hermeneutic uh, to scripture as a whole. Can you talk about how? Um, you understand a redemptive historical or covenantal covenant historical hermeneutic, um, because I think a lot of the things that come later in in the uh, chapters will make a lot of sense in terms of the way you go about answering the questions that you want to pose. Would I make uh, a distinction between covenant histor or speak of covenant historical uh, rather than redemptive historical, because um, uh, I think that flows out of a recognition. Uh, that, and this is maybe more of an overall biblical, um, theological and systematic theological, uh, uh, perspective rather than what is, uh, strictly, um, uh, can strictly been, be demonstrated from, uh, focusing on Paul's, uh, teaching as a unit. But, um, the, uh, redemptive history does not begin until the fall. Right. Mm-hmm. It's consequent to the fall. A covenant history begins at creation. Um in the in in the uh covenantal bond that is established uh with its arrangement and stipulation between God and Adam, covenant of works. And uh the rest of uh, of given the fall then the rest of a covenant history now becomes redemptive history uh as uh as that history is redemptive as it uh, remediates uh not only it remediates the results of 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 the fall of adam's sin uh, uh the corruption and and death as the consequence guilt corruption and death as a consequence of sin that has entered uh, as that is remediated ultimately in the work of Christ, and as Christ then brings the original uh, purposes of God to create in, in, in creation uh, to its its consummation in Christ. This is a little bit tangential, but um, you know, in the background to what you're doing with the with that biblical theological approach, um, it's going to inform the way you use Scripture and the unity of different authors um, saying basically the same thing, and of of course New Testament use of the Old and those issues. So we don't have to get into those specifics, but I thought it was important um, to lay out just that program so that when when you do exegesis, um, that will be understood, the broader picture. Yeah, maybe maybe I could just... uh... See what I've found very helpful if I if I had to go to a single text in scripture now this takes us outside of Paul uh, it's the opening words of of Hebrews uh which I see as kind of an umbrella well uh, in terms of uh a literary analysis analysis of the document uh which uh you know is almost certainly not written by Paul um it's it's an um, it's 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 a it's a declaration that's intended to cover the whole document, uh, but as it does that, I think it serves to provide an overall perspective on how scripture uh, as a whole will how better how um, how the his how revelation as a whole is to be viewed, and then how the Bible itself revelation is a record of that history god having in the past at at various times and in different ways spoken to the fathers and the prophets has in these last days um spoken to us uh in the son so that that highlights uh the historical that the, that revelation comes as a history it comes as a history that has uh diversity to it um 
it's a it's a it's it's one history, but it has uh, ver- uh, uh, at various times and in different ways, and I think that uh, it, th- that it's at least whatever the writer has uh, in mind there. It it, uh, it it's appropriately applied uh, to recognize the various genre literary types that there are in scripture that uh, uh, deserve attention as such. But it's always part of that of that historical process and then the process comes uh has its unifying focus and its culmination uh in God's uh, revelation in the sun which the writer you see signals as nothing less than last days uh revelation which is to say that what uh, that history comes to its eschat nothing less than eschatological culmination in Christ so that, I, I think that uh, that's just a, an absolutely essential uh, overall orientation on what the Bible is about, if you will, uh, as as God's revelation to the church. Yes, Doctor Gaffin, uh, it, does Paul, given what you just we've just talked about, the unity and diversity of the scriptures, the different form, different genres, and so forth, and how they find their culmination in Christ per Hebrews one. Uh, is is it the case that there is uh, f- for Paul a center to his theology? I know that this is a in biblical studies in general the idea of finding centers has, is problematic. But can we say that there is a central focus in Paul's theology? Yeah. Well, um, as you say, that that is a debated question, and uh, after having laid out some methodological considerations in the first chapter, uh, and I would touch on uh, uh, touch on some of the issues that uh, Jared was raising. Uh, it's that question that I address in the second chapter, and um, my basic uh, position there is uh, what I want to show there for Paul is that yes, there is a center uh, in. Um, in uh well i think it's helpful to look at it this way uh negatively if if you seek to identify a center as sort of a single concept from which everything else uh can be deduced what um uh what uh, is sometimes uh, referred to as a, as a as a central doctrine uh then i think um that's not useful to look at Paul that way, um, particularly given uh, the occasional uh, uh, character of his of his writings. In other words, uh, the Pauline Corpus's letters addressed to specific situations. But uh, what comes out so clearly, I don't see how anyone can question this. Uh, as with any writer, uh, some concerns are of more importance than others. Uh, some things are more central. Uh, other things are more peripheral. And then uh, when, when you have that, uh, from that perspective, uh, then I think you are bound to recognize that there is a centering concern in Paul. Let me put it that way. And... Uh, that I think comes to light as I tried to show by um, by considering uh, uh, various passages, and I think probably if you had to single out one, as I try to show, uh, it's First Corinthians fifteen uh, three and four, where Paul is uh, clearly uh, reflecting on his his teaching, his preaching as a whole. Um, and uh, he says that of first importance uh, are the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, uh, the death, uh, together with the resurrection, as the death of Christ is uh, addresses and deals with human sin and is according to Scripture, which is simply uh, to say that um, Paul is, is seeking uh, to maintain uh, as he may well have been utilizing an earlier uh, formulation uh, that he now takes over by inspiration and, and uses uh, for himself, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, 
uh, as is it brings us into the, the brings us to the center of Paul's theology uh, with uh, the implications uh, the many implications that follow from 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 the death and resurrection or more broadly uh, the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ and that can be brought out in uh, in a number of passages as I seek to show uh, in that chapter. Uh, Maybe I could just go on to add this here, and, and, and you, you may want to pick up on this. I think what that what what further comes to light is that uh, uh, if we have to say what is as central uh, to what uh, what comes from Paul's letters as uh, as the, his most central concern. Um, without meaning to depreciate uh, other very essential and important considerations, it is uh, the, the believer, it is union with Christ, who is what he is because of his death and resurrection. Uh, Paul uses language in many places, uh, Ephesians 2, um, Colossians 3, um, Notable places of, of being united with Christ in his uh, Galatians 2:20, his death and resurrection. Uh, but I think it's very important um, not to see uh, as if as if in the application of redemption there's a distinct there's a distinctive um, um, being united with Christ in his death, which is different or can somehow be separated from uh, being united with Christ in his resurrection, but uh, uh, Paul uses that language of being united with Christ in his death, resurrection, ascension, because we are united to Christ as he now is, Mm -hmm. who he is as as exalted uh, to the right hand of of the Father because of his death and, and resurrection. So that then uh, uh, that union uh, uh, pl- uh, that union works out in in the Christian life uh, in, in various ways that are ref- that are reflective of what was accomplished by the cross and by the resurrection. Right. Now you bring up in in your class that you used to teach Acts and Paul another mathematical illustration that there's an elliptical character to that. There's two events, but they're basically they're distinguishable, but they're inseparable. The fact that Christ died and that he was raised, and I believe it's Acts 2.42. It's in the ballpark. It might be 24. I might be having a fit of dyslexia. Peter, in his sermon, says that it is not possible for Christ to remain in the grave. And uh, we see that, that intimate connection between his death for us and his, therefore, subsequent glory that is then repeated and reflected by us. Uh, Philippians 2.5-11 talks about our suffering unto glory and Paul, all over the place, talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ in his suffering so that we would also share in his glories. I need to mention to everyone that they should pick up a copy of Dr. Gaffin's book, Resurrection and Redemption. That is a must-read as well. If you do not have a copy of that, that book is in print, and it must be bought. <laughs> it must. That's a that's the German müssen. It must be. You have to. It's imperative. And it shows for us the very fact that Christ is the center, and if Christ is not the center, then we need to come up with a new title for this program because we're in, we're in big trouble. Dr. Yes. Dr. Gaffin, I, on, on all those notes, one very important point that you make in the book is the distinguishing mark between Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis. Can you expound for us how Paul starts with Historia and how that is foundational, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, once again, where Paul says, this is a matter of first importance. If an apostle tells you this is a matter of first importance, we ought to listen as much as we possibly can. What is Historia Salutis, and why is it foundational here before we end up moving into the Ordo Salutis? Okay, uh, first of all, some comment on the distinction. Uh, it's, as far as I, Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis, um, just to make uh, clear, uh, just to make, uh, I think terms uh, are known to a lot of folk, but just to make clear, uh, they're both Latin. Um, Ordo Salutis, Order of salvation uh, is 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 a term that has 
classical uh, coinage and has had continued uh, usage uh, down to the present. And it uh, refers most often to the area which is otherwise described as the uh, referred to as the application of redemption. Uh, so order of salvation, order salutis, application, uh, at least in my own uh, uh, discourse, right, and I would be using those uh, uh, interchangeably to refer to uh, how uh, individual sinners uh, come in their own life history uh, to uh, how they are saved, how they come to share uh, how they are saved existentially or uh, uh, actually uh, come, um, well, maybe we should just inject here what they receive through, how they, what they receive through faith. Um, uh, the Historia Salutis uh, is a more recent term. It's obviously coined uh, because of uh, to to distinguish to between uh against the background of ordo salutis to find uh another latin equivalent history of salvation for history of salvation this refers in more uh in other terms to the accomplishment of salvation in in distinction uh from its uh from its application and here, uh, at least as I would be using the term, I have in view um, the statement, uh, we can re- reference the statement at the beginning of the book of Hebrews again. It's that history uh, that uh, initiates already in the garden uh, on uh, Genesis 3.15 uh, in God's uh, commitment which becomes clearly in the light of Scripture, a covenantal commitment uh, to uh, deliver um, Adam and Eve and, and, uh, and his people, um, those who are belong, who God has elected uh, in the line of Adam and Eve to um, for, uh, for salvation. The history that begins there and then moves largely through the history of Israel as a covenant nation, uh, call of Abraham, uh, and then comes to its consummation in Christ, and then um, is looking for its uh, full realization uh, at Christ's return. Uh, So the history of salvation has a once-for-all character, focused in what culminates in Christ, uh, the order of salvation has to do with the ongoing appropriation of that salvation. A lot of a lot of listeners will be familiar with uh, uh, John Murray's uh, very helpful book, "A Redemption Accomplished and Applied," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that uh, and he's he gave it that title because that reflects established usage. You, you could see that as translated redemption. Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis, and uh, or salvation, uh, Historia Salutis and Ordo Salutis. So uh, it's with with that distinction um, clear. Um, then, when Paul speaks as he does in First Corinthians fifteen uh, uh, three and four, to take that in, that um, that. Um, Instance, and he says uh, there uh, that he's speaking of things of first importance. Well, he doesn't use that expression anywhere else, and uh, I think what that signals to us, uh, as uh, taking into view Paul's teaching as a whole, there is there is nothing more important for Paul. This takes us to what is most important. Okay, what is most important? It is the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, not as bare events, but in their saving significance, uh, and as they are uh, the fulfillment of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. So just on the side, they're very important. What this passage teaches us is that the whole Old Testament, it points at least to the fact that the whole Old Testament is ultimately Christ-focused uh 
looking toward uh, what's taken place, particularly uh, in the death and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus makes that same point uh, in the close at the close of, of Luke's gospel. Now, um, so Paul is saying that when we want to uh, understand salvation, when the church wants uh, to uh, lay hold of the salvation in Christ, um, and and what is most uh, basic to their uh, laying hold of uh, that salvation, receiving, uh, uh, sharing in salvation, then the focus must be on Christ and must be on Christ in his work as that work centers in the cross and resurrection. So uh, any talk, any concerns about appropriating salvation, receiving salvation, must take their point of departure uh, or in, 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 um, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Or, in other words, ordo salutis must be oriented to the history of salvation. Now, um, uh, so you see, nothing is said there, for instance, about a justification. Nothing is said there about sanctification or the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, at least explicitly. Now, having made the statement I just did, I want to, to uh, uh, immediately qualify, because as we as we can see there, Paul is telling us the death and resurrection uh, are not simply sort of bare events, isolated events, but they have significance. And their significance, he clearly signals, and that this, this is now at the, at, uh, remember, at the heart of his teaching, the death and resurrection have significance, uh, are related particularly to our sin, to human sin and I would say human sin and all of its consequences. Sin as it incurs guilt, sin as it incurs uh, uh, corruption. So that, uh, impl- uh, qualifying what I said, implicitly, you see, we're pointed to what Paul will uh, elsewhere make clear about justification and uh, about sanctification, um, of the gift uh, of, of the Spirit. So it's not as if justification and um and sanctification are not central to paul they're absolutely central but they're central as they are related to the center of um uh, what paul identifies here as the center the death and resurrection of christ and as we said earlier as believers then are united with christ mm-hmm. in his uh in his death and resurrection that's so important, and we need to see Christ at the center, and then when we understand who he was, the fact that he was incarnated because we sinned, the fact that he died because he needed to die on behalf of his people's sin, and the fact that he was raised for sinners, for justification, but also for their sanctification, adoption, and for their glorification. We come to see that the person of Christ is central, and then, as sinners, we somehow need to be attached to him, for lack of a better word. I mean, there are many other words. And and what we find in Scripture is that there is a union. There is a mystical union. And that union is, existentially, it is by faith. We are united to him by faith. And then through faith, we receive all the benefits. Uh, we receive all the spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. Now, Dr. Gaffin, you've experienced criticisms over the years, and this is also a criticism sometimes levied against the new perspective on Paul, the fact that if you place so much emphasis on union with Christ, it can tend to eclipse or blur any distinctions that we may make in the application of salvation. For example, some people might say, well, if you place so much emphasis on union with Christ, where does justification go? Uh, does it just get swallowed up in this amorphous, somehow vague union smoke vapor that comes and takes you over? And there are a whole host of other questions related to that, but how would you respond to the charge that an overemphasis on union or a centrality of union or talk about it being somehow an umbrella of the ordo somehow makes the other benefits unnecessary. Especially imputation, right? And imputation that, of sin common. is another one, yes. Yeah. 
I think that criticism could be true of some new perspective approaches, which, as I indicated earlier, triggered my reason for writing the book in the first place, that sort of a kind of amorphous or undelineated focus on Christ eliminates clear understanding of, say, of justification. So all I can say is in the book, I've tried to show that that's not the case at all. I think what the book does show is that Paul does not teach, as it appears that some are wanting to maintain more or less vigorously a kind of justification centrism, as if everything in Paul flows from justification, including union with Christ, Mm -hmm. which does appear to be the case at least in a large a large spectrum or a large segment of Lutheran orthodoxy, but it is not the case in Reformed theology. If the effort is to seek to demonstrate that justification has that centrality, then I think it's very difficult to see how union and justification are related in Paul. But I think what the book shows, and I, and I hope more or less successfully, is that while everything flows from union with Christ by faith, that does not in any way mitigate against distinguishing and identifying what justification is, what is central to justification, uh, namely uh, imputation of Christ's completed righteousness and sanctification. What I always find helpful is that Back to 1 Corinthians 15.3. Death and resurrection of Christ are uh, for our sin. Mm-hmm. So much for a Paul, as can be seen, as you, as you work through his letters, is wrapped up there. What he has in view is sin and all of its, all of its consequences. Now, there are multiple consequences to sin, but those consequences reduce, really, it's, I think it's fair to say, of one of two sorts. Uh, that can be signaled in, on the one hand, in guilt, uh, legal consequences, and in corruption or enslavement to sin, which have to do with its outworking in our actual conduct. Uh, and Paul addresses both of those without confusing them, but addresses both of them as they flow from union with Christ. As I think Calvin makes very clear in Book 3 of the Institutes and Many others have seen, uh, back to the Puritan Theology book by Beakey and Jones, I think uh, Jones in the chapter I mentioned earlier uh, shows how both justification and regeneration or sanctification flow uh, from union with Christ for Puritan writers. Uh, I must admit a certain frustration that within our circles, however you want to define a a North American uh, confessional uh, reform theology that mm-hmm. there is the difference which uh, I just shouldn't be there and I and I really have a difficult time seeing why it is there. I do encourage people to look at the Westminster Standards for instance and Dr. Gaffin works with the standards in this book by faith not by sight in a very helpful way especially pointing out the Westminster larger catechism. I would also like to emphasize the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 11 section 4 which speaks very much to the point at issue of whether or not justification can be spoke about prior to, well, we would say union with Christ, but also prior to faith, whether there's an eternal justification, for instance, or whether justification can somehow be the source of all salvific blessing in the life of a believer. And that's just not the case. We cannot speak of justification prior to faith, and and therefore we cannot speak of justification prior to union with Christ, because that's how we are united to him by faith. And I would encourage people to take a look at uh, Lane Tipton's interview he had with us on justification sola fide. I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. And his inaugural address and article in the Westminster Theological Journal. It's a helpful way to think about things and orient yourself to uh, the Ordo Salutis and how we are tied to Christ. See, I I think um, it's good you call attention to that section of the Confession. 
I think on balance, it's fair to say that our justification is decreed from all eternity. Indeed. Our justification, we may think, of, we may speak of justification from eternity in that sense. Uh, we may speak of justification, uh, I think it's theologically appropriate, as accomplished uh, at, in the actual death and resurrection of Christ, I think what needs to be recognized, and, and John Murray, as, as my teacher, uh, really drove this home, when uh, Paul is using that language, he is talking about what is not true until believers believe and trust in Christ, right. when believers are united to Christ by faith. So, And that, I think, is what the, the confession is concerned to bring out, too. Well, exactly. And when Paul in First Timothy 3 he talks about Christ being raised uh, for his vindication or for his justification. That's not your justification. It is for your justification, but properly speaking, you are not acquitted yet until you have Christ's imputed righteousness, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so that's where I think things can become convoluted. When you start to talk about the role of evangelism as preaching the fact that you are justified passively, Therefore, be justified actively by faith. That's that gets really odd and and confusing, and that's not a reformed way to speak. Yeah, certainly not a biblical way. No, Mark Jones in his foreword alludes very very quickly to uh, all the precedent in the world for that distinction of uh, redemption accomplished and applied. But the the Puritans were well aware of this in their use of the term uh, impetration and then application. So they were able to distinguish um, those two aspects of redemption. And then I would also argue the uh, the redemption that occurs um, in the pactum um, before eternity, um, involved in the decree, of course, too. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. I I did have that's that's a, a higher order higher level question, but I had another one. I didn't want to end the interview without giving you, Dr. Gaffin, a chance to talk about um, how you understand eschatology, because it it is such a, a strong current through both chapter three and chapter four, um, even in the title. So I was wondering if you could um, maybe tell the listeners what you mean by eschatology, and how does that affect things like the benefits of salvation and um, other concepts like the inner man and the outer man? It's it's such a uh, paradigm for understanding those verses. Um, can you give a little bit of an overview of what you're going for? Yeah, I think uh, for many folk, um, uh, eschatology uh, will have the sense that it has come to um, have uh, primarily uh, in the in the life of the church and 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 the way it's often used in systematic theologies, uh, where uh, eschatology refers to matters that are from the vantage point of the church today, where we are as believers today, is entirely future. So things, uh, eschatology in this, uh, in this widespread understanding, uh, deals with, uh, what happens at, uh, to believers and unbelievers at death, uh, and then what uh, will happen, uh, what is still to happen in the future, uh, you get into uh, the classical uh, debates among uh, a pre and post constructions of, of the future, and then uh, matters like the uh, the final judgment and the eternal state um, uh, beyond the return of Christ. Um, and uh, the 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 sense of eschatology. I'm using eschatology in the sense of the way in which I think uh, we are bound to recognize the New Testament uses it, that eschatology has to do with things that have already arrived and are already possessed by believers as they have arrived uh, in the first coming of Christ. As we could... Maybe I could put it, uh, the conven- a widespread understanding is eschatology has uh, to do with things entirely future and related in various ways to the still future return of Christ. That's, of course, all that is eschatological, no doubt, but uh, eschatology 
for the New Testament uh, has to do with what has already arrived in the first coming. And by the way, let me just say it's important to see that uh, the first co- what we distinguish as the first and second comings, uh, and, uh, and there, I don't think there can be objection to that, but it is important to see how they are organically related and that they are really, um, they are re- better seen as uh, temporally separated, two temporally separated episodes of the, of the coming of Christ. Uh, the coming, the, the seen in their unity. So that this is where that geometric figure of the ellipse, uh, I think is, is helpful. Um, the, um, the, there, there's one re- eschatological reality of Jesus and his teaching calls it the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and Paul explicates that in what he teaches about uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, that the, um, the kingdom is both present and future. There's this already not yet a structure. Um, and, what the, and, and, and it's in that sense uh, I think that's a fully biblical understanding of 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 eschatology. So that has such important uh, implications and perspectives, very practical for uh, who who the church today and for uh, the Christian life. Uh, that um, um, see, for instance, when uh, just to put it in a historical perspective, when. Uh, when uh what the reformation comes to recapture uh comes to understand in its understanding of justification by faith is that when paul says for instance romans 8 1 there's now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus that means that the verdict that will be openly pronounced on my life in the final judgment when Christ returns, what uh, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms call the open acquittal, that acquittal has already been pronounced on on my life. Now, as Paul emphasizes, none. In, uh, there's now no uh, condemnation. Uh, and I think what uh, see, I think the ref, uh, the 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 Reformation. I would always want to argue has uh, what what is significant about the Reformation. Uh, we well, see uh, the media, uh, late medieval Roman Catholicism, uh, as Roman Catholicism continues today, leaves uh, the believer uncertain uh, about the verdict at the final judgment. But that uh, the Reformation in understanding uh, in its in its laying hold of of of, of justification uh, by the sole instrumentality of faith. Faith alone, in that sense, uh, the justific uh, the Reformation um, is uh, recaptures the eschatological heart of the gospel, uh, and I think what 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 we are I I think the church is is coming more and more to appreciate in or ought to come to appreciate more and more uh, is that sanctification uh, no less. Then justification uh, has its 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 eschatological core. What Professor Murray uh, called on the basis of passages like Romans six, um, uh, definitive sanctification, but reflected already. If you look at Calvin's opening comments in his commentary on Romans six, uh, uh, he doesn't use that language, but that's what he's articulating. That uh, that there there is. Uh, uh, the power of sin, the lordship of sin in the life of the believer has been broken definitively. That is to say, eschatologically. Uh, Amen. We uh, we yes. are dead. We are as dead to sin. Um, in in uh, in the in, in, with with a view toward um, serving sin as our master, as we are. Uh, uh, as we are definitively and definitively justified. Now, of course, the sanctification that works out in a different in, in a different way because uh, 
while uh, the sanctification at the core of our being is definitive and perfect, uh, it's outworking in our lives, uh, in the life of the believer, uh, uh, has to, uh, we are, we continue uh, as those who are no longer slaves to sin, uh, to be exposed to, uh, to temptation and, uh, and, 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 and we, and we have an ongoing struggle and battle with sin. And this is where I think the anthropological distinction is, as I've tried to show in the book between inner, inner self, inner man and outer man, uh, becomes, uh, so important. Uh, at the, as I, as I, uh, I think faithful to Paul like to say, uh, with a view toward, uh, sanctification as well as justification so far as we are inner man that is at the core of our being what paul would also call the heart we will never be more resurrected never more sanctified than we already are uh, but then uh, we the outer man continues to exist excuse me the inner man continues to exist uh in the outer man uh, as Paul indicates in Second Corinthians four sixteen, and and that outer man is short of resurrection, um, and that gives rise then to uh, to the struggle, uh, or uh, a struggle um, in the life of the believer, ongoing struggle with sin, uh, so that um, and an ongoing. Uh, now we're getting into areas you know that need. Uh, I can only uh, you know an interview like this. Uh, give an overall perspective needs to be worked out uh, in, in more detail uh this is this is to uh not to deny in any way that that the believer uh remains uh depraved totally depraved that depravity uh permeates our uh our lives but there are the the the, S, the, the, the good news of the gospel the eschatologically the eschatological definitive aspect of the gospel is that a work has been done in me that is deeper than my depravity. And that is that I now uh, have been turned from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness, however uh, the struggle uh, may be uh, in, in living out the enslavement to righteousness. Paul is just very clear on that. In the latter part of, of of Romans six, all kinds of implications that need to be worked out, uh, spelled out, but uh, just so important uh, to uh, a basic sound theology of the Christian life. Doctor Gaffney, I have one more question for you, and I I realize we'll have to touch upon this from thirty thousand feet, but I think it will be helpful and instructive for many of our listeners. And this is the idea of the role of the law in the Christian life, or the importance of obedience to the law. Christ told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also commanded them to teach people to obey everything that he's commanded them. How can we avoid the conclusion that since we are united to Christ and he has done everything for us, therefore it doesn't matter how I live? How do we avoid using union with Christ to uh, be basically a cover-up for evil, is how Peter says it in First Peter? Well, it's, you know, it's the question Paul asked at the beginning of Romans uh, 6. Exactly, yeah. Um, he rejects the implication in the strongest possible terms. Uh, I guess, you know, it's a, in addressing that question, you ask yourself about what salvation is all about. You know, is salvation basically uh, a mechanism by which uh, I'm I'm right with God uh, so far as His judging me uh, for my sin is concerned, and I can go about my uh, otherwise go about uh, uh, life, living life for myself? Mm-hmm. Um, that that's just so uh, that that may be. <laughs> I hope there's no one that will, is going to want to say that, but I think that, in effect, uh, is your question. Uh, in, in certain antinomian positions, that's that's basically where people are left theologically. It doesn't really matter what um, 
what I do and that well or even if a preacher is uh wrong in calling people to obey sometimes the shades of antinomianism are a little uh more subtle than what we think i mean right. people in orthodox um traditions and people in our circles for sure no one's going to say the law is, is wicked and the law uh, you know we should we should just go about living however we want but nevertheless, we also forget sometimes that Paul wrote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we love. We forget sometimes that verse 10 is the very next verse, <laughs> which we are created yeah. by him. We are his workmanship, created by Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Yeah, well, thanks for that, because that, that that says what I, I should have drawn to that text, that... Uh, uh, Every everyone ought to every every believer ought to take a vow never to quote Ephesians two eight and nine without verse ten, mm. uh, because you end up with a very truncated uh, view of what it means to be a Christian without uh, verse ten. Uh, just uh, you know, very quickly on the, uh, uh, an analogy I heard in a, it was on a radio sermon a number of years ago. Uh, uh, that comparing salvation to planting uh, uh, to God as planting trees, and the point was made uh, when God saves, uh, He doesn't plant just any kind of trees; He plants fruit trees, and that uh, the whole point of salvation, the whole point of justification, is to uh, bring a is to produce people who will be fruit bearers. And the law then directs us in our fruit bearing, mm. uh, which is, you know, in classical theological terms, that's the third use of the law, which, as uh, Calvin uh, reminds us, is uh, is its principal use and um, its chief purpose. Yeah. You know, that's so helpful. And also, another text you bring out so clearly in, in a number of places um, is Philippians two twelve and 13, I believe, which talks about us working. But the reason that we're called to work is because it's Christ who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we come to see the role of that, of the Spirit in our lives, which is very much... Um, spoken about in this book, By Faith, Not By Sight, and uh, it's just a helpful understanding, I think a much more dynamic understanding of sanctification and the role of the Spirit, and a much more biblical one, one based on the text and solid exegesis. So I, I want to thank you, Dr. Gaffin, for writing this book. I thank PNR for bringing it back into print, and I thank you also for joining us today and, and taking the time out of your schedule uh, your translating schedule especially, <laughs> to come and, and speak about this with our listeners. Thanks so much, Dr. Gaffin. My privilege, again. I hope it will prove useful. Thanks yeah. for the time. Absolutely. I do want to point people to the website. There you're going to find a whole host of links uh, to various resources uh, that Dr. Gaffin has written and uh, lectures that he has delivered. Uh, you can find us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs, and you can subscribe for free uh, via RSS. You can also just listen online, and we have all of our episodes from the past available, and you can download them to your heart's content. Uh, we love what we do, and uh, we're looking forward to being able to reach more and more people through 2014 and beyond. Uh, but we need your help, so visit us online. Give us your feedback. You can email us at mail at reformedforum.org or tweet us at Reformed Forum. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.